Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Andreas Wagner will join us to discuss Life Finds a Way. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, theory of evolution has revolutionized biology, but what can it teach us about creativity? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Andreas Wagner. Dr. Wagner is a professor and chairman at the Department of Evolutionary Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of Zurich and an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. He's the author of four books on evolutionary innovation and his most recent release, Life Finds a Way, What Evolution Teaches Us About Creativity, explores this issue for a general audience. And Dr. Wagner, very pleased to have you today on the Grok's Science Show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. A very fascinating book you've written here, Life Finds a Way, Idea of Evolution and How Evolution Can Teach Us a Little Bit About Managing Our Own Creativity. I'm curious why you decided to write the book. Yeah, you know, my bread and butter work, so to speak, uh, is fairly technical. You know, what my group does a lot is uh, what is called experimental evolution, where we expose microbes to new environments in the laboratory and see how they um, how their genomes change over hundreds of thousands of generations. Very technical word. Uh, very technical work involves a lot of um, you know, the, the latest technology. Hard to communicate, but in as part of this work, what you learn is that you know, evolution innovates by um, very similar principles to how human beings create um, scientists, engineers, but perhaps also artists. And um, with this book, I really wanted to reach out to a broader audience, a broader audience uh, compared to the audiences that we normally communicate to. And that was the basic impetus for writing this book. And you begin your book very interestingly. You talk generally about it's called the cartography of evolution, the shape of how evolution works. Yes, that goes back to um, you know, the 1930s and to a very well-known, at least among evolutionary biologists, a scientist of the name of Sewell Wright, an American scientist who um, carried out at the, time, at the time were very complicated experiments on guinea pigs where he studied how guinea pigs uh, change over time when he bred them to bring out certain traits. Um, and he was very mathematically inclined but uh, most biologists at the time were not. So he looked for a way to convey the essence of his experiments and what he found to the general public. And he came up with a concept that he called the adaptive landscape. And an adaptive landscape um, we can think of as the landscape of solutions to a complicated problem, such as, for example, to create a guinea pig with um, an attractive coat color or um, the... um, the, um, what breeders also want to do, for example, uh, create cattle with a high milk yield or crops with, uh, with uh, a good yield. And what he found is that this adaptive landscape uh, is a very, very good metaphor to explain how evolution solves these kinds of problems. And for many, many years, 
uh, this concept was merely used as a, me a metaphor, and he thought of it as a metaphor. But uh, in the last 10 or 20 years or so, uh, we have learned that we can actually map these landscapes. So they're much more than metaphors. We can use state-of-the-art technology, uh, for example, in my lab, where we study the evolution of specific proteins, for example, proteins that make bacteria resistant against antibiotics, um, and study how they explore um, these landscapes. And one thing that we learn in this work is that these landscapes often have a very, very complicated topography uh, with many low foothills, if you will, that correspond to a mediocre solution to a problem. Um, then a number of peaks that are sort of, inter of intermediate height that correspond to decent, but perhaps not the best solutions. Uh, and then some very high peaks like the Mount Everest that correspond to the best, solu to the best solutions. And evolution needs to navigate through these landscapes and find the highest peaks in them. So in a way, evolution is kind of trying to find its way through these different landscapes, trying to get to the highest peak. How does it do that? And then how can we then relate that idea or that process to how we come up with ideas creatively? What evolution generally does, it produces first a diversity of solutions, and it does that through mechanisms like DNA mutations that create different organisms, and, and each organism embodies a different solution to a problem, whether it's, you know, be the produce a more streamlined fish or a bacterium with a more energy-efficient metabolism or any kind of problem that, uh, that uh, life faces in its evolution. Um, and then it one important principle is that it selects the best solutions. And by reiterating this process of mutation and selection, it improves existing solutions. Now, there is one problem, however, with this process, and that is that Selection, natural selection, is like an engine that can go only uphill in such a landscape. That is, wherever an evolving organism will find itself, um, natural selection in combination with mutation will drive it up the next hill, and from that hill, at that hill, it will get stuck. Why? Because natural selection can never descend into um, the next valley, which may be necessary to get to the next higher peak. And in a rugged landscape, and some of these landscapes that people have been studying have hundreds or thousands of peaks, you need to actually traverse multiple valleys um, to get to the very highest peak. So in other words, often things need to get worse before they get, can get better. And natural selection is very poor at uh, this part of the process. Now in biological evolution, um, nature actually has um, come up with other ways, with ways to actually um, work around this shortcoming of natural selection. There is um, evolutionary forces, one is called genetic drift, and that I explain in detail in the book. Another one is called recombination, and they allow uh, nature to circumvent uh, these valleys and um, work around again um, around these limitations of natural selection. Now, when we now talk about our minds, okay, we still know very little uh, about how our minds exactly solve um, difficult problems. Um, but what we do know uh, from a completely different area of science, and that is computer science, is that difficult problems, the ones that need the most creativity to solve them, actually have one thing in common, um, and that is that they, their solutions form a very rugged landscape uh, with a complex topography involving many hills, uh, peaks, uh, and also the valleys that, that uh, you need to get from one to the next. So in other words, whatever mechanisms our minds use um, to, actually, um, to actually navigate the landscapes of the solutions of the problems that they solve, 
they face a similar problem. Um, sometimes things need to get worse before they um, can get better. And they've also uh, come up with a number of ways uh, to, to do that. For example, um, there is one um, class of mechanisms that are very um, similar to recombination in biology. Recombination is a mechanism that allows organisms to make very large jumps through an adaptive landscape. Well, in our mind, we have similar mechanisms. Um, they're called playing, they're called dreaming, um, they're called uh, mental states called hypnagogia, um, and a number of others that uh, are described in the book. And they are our means to actually navigate the solution landscapes of the problems uh, that we're facing. You know, psychologists who have studied human creativity have thought for a long time that it's akin to Darwinian evolution in many ways. Um, there is... Um, um, there's, this idea actually goes back to Darwin's time, but it has gotten stronger and stronger in, since the second half of the 20th century, um, where some people really talk about you know, the human mind creating blind variation ideas whose, whose um, impact or value for a creation uh, we cannot foresee, um, that we then select according to their value. And in this process, um, our minds allow us actually to, through mechanisms that we don't fully understand yet, uh, to actually sometimes come up with worse solutions that are stepping stones to better solutions. And um, there's many psychological studies uh, in this area, and one of them that I, that I talk about in the book uh, regards a famous painting by Picasso uh, called Guernica, uh, where we have a very detailed record of sketches that uh, Picasso uh, produced, dozens and dozens of sketches uh, before he reached that final painting. And what's striking about these sketches is that they are actually not a continuous um, progression towards the final painting. Um, they sort of represent fits and starts and divergences, side streets, dead ends, uh, so to speak, um, that Picasso apparently had to go through until he could, um, until he could get at the final painting. And individual elements of the final painting, actually, some of them can be found in the sketches and others are not there. He had some visual elements of the, in those sketches that he completely threw out again before he got to the final painting. So what we see here is a minded work that proceeds very much like uh, evolution um, through a, a complex topography towards a final uh, supreme creative product. Certainly in, in evolution and certainly in the, in the landscape of ideas, there may be ideas that are best suited for the environment that may not necessarily be the overall best idea. Yeah, so it's a very good question. Currently, we do not have a systematic way. And clearly, any kind of creative process interacts with the environment. So the environment plays an important role um, in this process. Um, and you know, that is really uh, a, a problem for, um, you know, for ongoing, ongoing research in many different areas. For example, our symbology, this interaction between um, the evolutionary process and the environment. Uh, but let me also add that there is actually a much more fundamental problem that uh, is faced in creative processes, both natural and uh, cultural. And that is that sometimes there's so many good solutions um, that it's actually very difficult to find the best one among them. Um, the number of solutions can be so astronomically large um, that uh, it would take, you know, if you had a computer to sift through all of them, uh, it could take longer than the age of the universe uh, to get to them. So often we have to be satisfied with 
solutions that are okay, but perhaps not the very best ones. And they're often good enough for what we need. Practically, what do you think evolution can teach us about better problem solvers? solvers? Yeah, I think that lessons that we learn from biological evolution have very broad implications from, you know, childhood education to, um, to how to actually select you know, students uh, for college or future business leaders and to actually define government policies uh, that make a nation competitive. Uh, because we know that you know, in these days, um, businesses and entire nations often compete on the basis of the creativity of their, um, of their workers or their, uh, or their citizens. And so it starts in, in early childhood. Um, and the most important thing that you want there is a very diverse education um, where you don't actually teach to you know, high-stakes standardized tests um, that have become really, really uh, important and created a hyper-competitive environment in our, um, in our childhood education that is really poison uh, to create you know, future creative leaders, if you will. So you want to get rid of that. You want to get to alternative models of evaluating a child's prospect for you know, a good high school or a good college, and there are some models I discuss in the book. It goes on from there, you know, also for you know, creative people in business. What you want uh, is a diverse education and sometimes a meandering early life where people try different things, uh, different activities, not only in science and technology for you know, somebody who is interested in that area, but in the arts and in, in, in a variety of, um, variety of activities, including travel, that gives you the kind of experiences that makes you a more creative person later on. So you know, people have known this for a while and, and advocated this for a while, but I think the evolutionary perspectives, perspective, what it gives us is that it uh, gives us a deeper reason um, for you know, what policies, um, childhood education and so forth, will work and which will not work. Certainly much has been made about various societies being perhaps more uh, conducive to creative problem solvers. Well, you know, if you actually talk about, you know, the national level of entire nations, and there's clearly big differences. You know, I think that, you know, an open society in which uh, uh, whose members can explore, you know, everything, uh, all kinds of, um, you know, thoughts, um, history of thought, um, will have a leg up. You know, I, so I think Western open societies um, will, for example, have an advantage in the long run over uh, societies like you know, current Chinese society where um, access to information is very restricted and access to education is as well. Uh, and what education there is is often much more homogeneous than what you can get in a Western country. So yes, there are some very, very broad um, patterns that uh, exist on the level of entire nations where there's clear differences and where you know, the United States uh, has still a leg up uh, but um, I think one has to be careful. Uh, for example, the current institutionalized xenophobia in the U.S. is not going to um, do U.S. creative culture um, um, a service. I think uh, immigration, uh, although it needs to be regulated, immigration is very important to create the kind of cultural diversity um, that uh, makes uh, society creative. Well, how broadly do you think uh, these ideas extend? What I would say is that, and this is something that has not been realized, you know, a lot so far, is that what you need a balance. What you need is a balance. You need a balance between, you know, the analog in in um, uh, in, in biological evolution would be the hill climbing of selection. You know, what would correspond to a very competitive culture uh, in uh, in uh, in the in the human realm, and 
um, this ability to create diversity of ideas without punishing failure, at least for a while until competition needs to kick in. And so what we need to find is this balance in a society. Uh, and that's, I think, an important task for future, for future work. And in this balance, both um, kinds of um, you know, ways of living need to be represented. And not all people are equally good at both. Uh, well, we are on slight out of time. I'm curious if maybe you just have some final words regarding your book, Life Finds a Way. Yeah, so I'm very excited that I was able to, to uh, share uh, about this book with your audience. I think it provides really a very important framework that allows people to actually think for themselves as to you know, what policies or what, you know, how to structure your life around creativity-enhancing principles on the level of individuals, but also on the level of organizations like businesses, schools, and universities. All right. Well, we're just talking with Dr. Andres Wagner. He is the author of Life Finds a Way, What Evolution Teaches Us About Creativity. And uh, Dr. Wagner, very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.